Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts. Alongside Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. We make up the Cubs television crew. And when this podcast is released, J.D., it will be the eve of the 2020 Cubs Major League season. Yeah, there will be a joy in Mudville as we, we finally start the 2020 baseball season. I couldn't be more excited. Uh, we, uh, As we record this, we, we uh, had just done the, the game last night with the White Sox. We'll do another one tonight. Uh, great fun to be back in the ballpark. Surreal for sure with no fans, uh, but, it's, but it's live baseball and it's uh, great to be back. This week's guest, Jed Hoyer, the Cubs Executive Vice President and general manager. This is Jed's ninth season uh, with the Cubs, previously with the Boston Red Sox and San Diego Padres. A really insightful, open, honest guy. We've uh, enjoyed getting to know Jed over the years. Yeah, a, a wonderful guy. You know, he's super competitive, uh, <laughs> and uh, obviously he's had a lot of uh, success in the game and uh, uh, you know, former college player, so he, he brings that to the table as well. Yeah, we will get into that and much more. Enjoy our conversation with Cubs executive Jed Hoyer. Jed, thanks for joining us this week. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the word that keeps coming to mind is surreal. Uh, it's great to have baseball back. It's definitely different, but I think the big takeaway, it's just great to be at the ballpark here in the crack of the bat. How do you feel? I totally agree with it. Um, I'm excited to watch some games on TV because ultimately I think the product that we're putting out there right now is is a made-for-TV product uh, with no fans, and I haven't done that yet. Um, but last night was the first real game, quote-unquote, you know, against a different opponent, you know, playing the White Sox. And there were some strange moments, you know, there was a, a, an at-bat in the, in the first at-bat of the game against Anderson and he had a line drive down the right field line. And you're so used to the crowd, you know, making a huge noise when it's either a foul ball or a triple. And it was just dead silence as the ball was called foul and kind of rattled around the outfield. And that was sort of my first moment in the first at-bat when I realized this is going to feel so different because you know, we're so used to Wrigley Field being alive all the time, and it, it's not. It's just the players, and like I said, it's sort of a made-for-TV product, which is which is fine, but we'll take some getting used to. Yeah, it's not only crowd reaction, but anticipation. And I, I, you're totally right. Like I think when we think of crowd noise, you think of uh, booing after the fact or cheering after the fact, but it, it is that moment where you're not quite sure and the crowd kind of swells and to not have that has to be strange even for the players. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a friend about that the other day, how one of the beauties of baseball, especially late in a game is that the tension builds unlike other sports, you know, it, it, that is the sort of the uh, having a no clock nature of, of baseball where, you know, you can have a huge at bat that can, you know, go on, you know, seven, eight, nine pitches with foul balls and and good takes by the hitter. And you can feel that tension in the ballpark growing as this at bat extends and that's gone. And um, so, yeah, it's not only the booing or the loud cheering. It's also just that that 
yeah, that, that tension building um, in a big moment. And, uh, you know, last night we had a bases loaded at bat. I think it was in the eighth inning. Uh, they brought in a reliever. It was, uh, I think it was seven to three at the time. And you think in, in a normal situation, this would be a place to be going crazy with the chance to, to tie the game or, or cut the lead. And it, and it was quiet. And so I do think it's going to take some getting used to not having that tension in the ballpark as well. In terms of the quality of play, uh, JD and I uh, discussed it on the air that it absolutely could affect the quality of play. It might be subtle enough where we might not really notice it. Uh, is that a concern that, that you have? And, and have players talked about kind of getting used to the fact that there is so much that will be different? I'm not worried about the quality of play on a day-to-day basis. I think that um, these guys are pros. These, these guys are so immensely talented. Um, that part of it, I, I don't. I don't worry about or what I do worry about is that I do think there's going to be some um, some days where I think that uh, the crowd noise would help a player uh, get ready to go. You know, this is a long season, you know, in even I mean, baseball is a long season and, and normally you need you, know, you need that crowd noise. And I think in, in this situation, you know, we're going to start the season with 17 or 18 days in a row. There's going to be some days you're not quite as high energy as normal. And I think that players get used to having the packed house to, you know, to be a, a shot of caffeine for them, a shot of adrenaline, and that's not going to be there. And so I think that's going to be a real challenge for, for all players and all teams is to, to, to provide that energy themselves or, or as a group and not count on the fans to do that for them. So a lot of that's going to have to come from, from Rossi and, and the leaders on the club, right? Just to make sure everybody's kind of focused on, on a daily basis. No question. You know, he actually, um, he did that the other day. We had a night, scrimmage and then we had an early scrimmage the next day and he made that point to the team and said you know this is what it's going to be like you're going to have a quick turnaround you know you're going to come out here there's not going to be fans and you're going to have to get yourself going and uh, I love that aspect of Rossi that he is very in tune with the players emotions and he's also super high energy you know he's going to bring that energy every day he always did as a player um, he didn't have to be playing to to, to be there and, and, and to be ready and I, I think he's going to He's going to provide a lot of that energy himself, and I think that's really important. You know, I think there's a um, a side B to this, um, and it could be that sometimes players in a big moment with the crowd going nuts kind of get out of their game a little bit, and maybe with a quieter ballpark, um, players will be able to control the moment a little bit better. And I guess that would probably vary from, from player to player. Have you had that kind of conversation or thoughts on, on that level? You know, it's funny you said that because we have had that conversation and there's certain players that I won't name that whenever the crowd starts going crazy or stands up and start, you know, and, and starts to cheer them on, I'm always like, stand, you know, sit down, sit down because, <laughs> you know, they're going to swing. They're going to swing if the guy pump fakes the pitch, you know, and I think that guys do get too excited. No question. They're, they're human. And, you know, some guys control that emotion really well and, and some guys don't. And so. I think it's going to be a player to player thing. And I think for the most part, we don't know who's going to react well and who doesn't. You know, we've also had the conversation of, does this help a young guy break into the big leagues? You know, yeah, it's, um, yeah. there's not 40,000 people and bright lights on you, you know, all the time. And so maybe it feels a little bit more comfortable and that adjustment period is easier than it would have been having to, to get out on that big stage and, uh, and perform in front of all the people. So you had some spring training, which uh, 
definitely helped uh, in terms of evaluation. But then you have a three and a half month break, and now you have a unique summer camp in terms of evaluating. And and you had a fairly decent idea of what uh, the 30-man roster might look like with uh, a couple of tough decisions. Uh, What has that evaluation process been like during this moment when everything is different? Well, one thing that's been made make this makes it easier, I guess, is having only having 30 spots to start out. You know, um, normally in a, in a normal season, we have to cut down after spring training to, to 25 or, or not 26. Um, and that's a little bit harder. So I do feel like it allows us to push some of those really tough decisions back a little bit. You know, we go from, you know, 30 to 28 to 26 this year. Um, but it's really hard. And we, we talk about that really almost every day to remind ourselves that um, evaluation in spring training is is uh, borderline impossible as it is. And now we're doing it in this environment where it's, you know, spring training round two, it's a short spring training. It's an odd environment. You know, candidly, some guys look like they're in the best shape they've ever been in because they use this three months exceptionally well. And other guys are probably still working into shape. And so it's uh, it's really hard to evaluate. And uh, we have to be wary of making um, you know, really tough evaluations now. Um, because sometimes you make some of your worst mistakes at the end of spring training. And that's probably doubly the case for, for, um, you know, this version of, of, of spring training. I want to go back briefly to the, to the shutdown. Um, you and your family spent uh, a lot of that time uh, actually in Arizona. Um, I, the silver lining, I think for all of us who've been in the game for a long time is to have that extra family time. And, and you have uh, a young family. Um, has that, been good to be around your kids a little bit more often. I, I I know talking to Theo, you know, a couple of hobbies that he had kind of had on his list that he he thought he might dive into during the break. Were, were you able to do that? The hobby part, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, but, but the kid part's been amazing. You know, it really has been that, you know, for whatever it is now, you know, four or five months, you know, to, I haven't traveled at all. Um, you know, I've you know, sort of wake up uh, and, and be around the kids every day. And yeah, you have to balance, you know, trying to balance the, you know, doing your job, you know, while also playing with them, but there's always breaks during the day to, to see them. And just that, um, that consistency that we, we don't have in, in this job. And, and, and most people don't have in, in other jobs either, where, you know, you know you're going to, you, you, you're not traveling. Um, you know, I don't have night games all the time. And so, um, yeah, the family stuff has been really good. And, and my kids are, or eight, five, and two, and so it's a really fun, fun time to to be with them all the time, and I, and I'll miss that. I'll, I'll I can't wait to, you know, go back to Wrigley and having you know have a, a packed house and, and and get back to what feels like normal in that in that area. But at the same time, the, the part I'll miss is you know seeing the kids every day like that. Um, it's a it's been a rare treat in some ways. Yeah, JD and I uh, talk a lot about routines and how. You know, for for baseball people, um, and JD can speak to this. Um, you, you get in one routine, and you know, two weeks in, you're comfortable, and then it changes, and you get into the next routine, and then two weeks in, you're comfortable with that. And so, it, it you you have to be able to change on a dime, right? Right, JD. Yeah, and that's that, that's kind of the, the the weird thing we're going through this year. There's there's so many changes. Um, you know. Um, life on the road for the players. I mean, how, how bizarre is that going to be? Um, 
and, and so I guess that's my question, just to kind of pivot off that. Uh, what is expected of the players on the road, Jed? What you know in terms of their freedom and and where they can go and what they can do, things of that nature. Well, you know, during this um, you know, spring training to the summer camp uh, that we've been part of, you know, what we've um, we've had a set of expectations for the players. Um, you, you don't want to uh, inhibit them completely. You know, they're adults, but you also, I think, you had to have sort of a codified set of of rules where. You know, we expect guys aren't going to be, you know, at bars or they're going to be really careful with with where they are socially. And they're going to really, I guess, for lack of a better way, just really respect all their teammates and try to as much as they possibly can stay, you know, stay safe, stay out of harm's way. You know, we haven't gone on the road yet. I, I know that'll be a team meeting before we do, but I would expect the same thing, you know, that I think guys are expected to treat it like a like a business trip and to avoid all the things that they've been avoiding here in Chicago um you know I think both for the Cubs and for Major League Baseball I think the, I think the um the testing and the and the number of positives has been has been excellent so far you know I think that most people expected worse I know I did um and it's been great but that can't be a false sense of security you know we can't think that because there's been a level of success so far that we can let our guard down. And I think that's going to be something that we constantly talk through with our, you know, with our, our players and, and our coaches is just, you know, let's keep making good decisions all year. You know, we, we've been successful, but that doesn't mean anything uh, in, in, uh, in that regard. We just have to, you know, keep at it all year and, uh, and hopefully uh, we can continue to, uh, you know, avoid positive tests and, and avoid breakouts with our team. That's a great point. You know, success, in terms of this season in in general and and winning and all that stuff uh, on a large scale only happens when the final game of the World Series is played and you feel like you had a healthy uh, productive major league season there are no uh, big wins really on August 1st right and i think that's the point you're getting at is that uh, this is a day-to-day thing and it can change on a dime and uh, we we've seen it in the world and you you've got to stay on it every single moment no question. And I've found myself, you know, more than ever before, you know, when you um, when you read about a positive case with with another team, there, there's such a level of, of a, a disappointment because you, you, you want this to work so badly and you want um, you want representative teams and, and you want everyone to stay healthy and you want to, you want people to be talking about um, the fact that you know baseball got back and, and the quality of play was good and that, you know, we, we played when, when it had a, had a playoffs, you know, crowned a champion. And, you know, I think that, you know, if we all know that there are legitimate hurdles to get to that point. And I think as an industry take away as the Cubs team, but as an industry, we all benefit so much from that success. And I, I just think that um, I just hope that all 30 teams can stay vigilant and stay safe to get to that point, because I think it would just be such a great thing for baseball. If we could, if we could pull that off. What, what are the, um, you know, in, in terms of contingency plans, um, and maybe there isn't one. Maybe it's just a fluid situation that you have to react to. But you know, say you know, a club comes down with four or five positives all at the same time, and you know, guys that have been around them have to be quarantined. I mean, is there is there a threshold? Is there a number? Is there a point where you say, okay, this team needs to shut it down for a number of days, or you just kind of put put all those guys aside and call up all your guys from your from your secondary camp. I mean, how's that going to play out? If you know, 
you know, that's sort of a million dollar, it's sort of a million dollar question. You know, I think that um, obviously the second part of the answer or your question is that I think that's what we expect is that, um, you know, if, if it's positives or close contacts, then that's what we're going to, we're going to have to heavily rely on, on South Bend. But I do think that that's, that is a real question of what happens if a, a team you know, has a, an outbreak that's significant enough that they're not really a representative team or they, they can't feel the team. And, you know, we're, it's, it's not, it's not clear. And then we're just all hoping that we avoid that scenario at all costs, because um, that would be one of those things that would, would damage the, the quality of play and would damage what we're trying to accomplish. So I, I hope we can avoid it, but yeah, I think that that would be, you know, largely leaning on your, on your depth. And that's why when we, when we talk about South Bend, I mean, it's equally important that, that those guys are are just as safe and, and vigilant there because um, you know that's our that's our triple A team that's our minor league system for the for this year you know and we, we we're going to need those guys to contribute and I do expect and I think everyone expects that there's going to be probably more nagging injuries this year there's going to be things that crop up because of the the uh, the nature of the the spring training getting shut down and, and the summer camp and and things like that there's going to be um, through COVID and through nagging injuries, there's going to be, you know, a, a bigger reliance on depth for a lot of teams. There, we've discussed all the new things. There are some new rules uh, in place. You mentioned the roster situation. Uh, there is a trade deadline. Uh, we've got the three batter minimum that would have uh, taken place even in a normal season. Uh, the universal DH uh, runner at second base to start extra innings. What new thing intrigues you the most? Not necessarily the thing you're excited about, but just maybe interested to see how it plays. I think the three batter minimum is the is the thing that um, will be the most different uh, that will that will experience every night. I Me, mean, of course, putting guy at second base in extra innings is going to be no doubt. We're not going to have that happen all the time you know but even last night I, I i realized you know i was kind of following along with with rossi's thinking and i was trying to think who he was trying to get in the game and, and get innings for last night and um you think oh wait you know this guy's got to face another hitter you know and that was something that i'm just not used to thinking and um i don't i don't think the dh will take too long to get used to and we, we've you know we have it a lot in spring training we have it in interleague play so that that's the rule for me that I think is going to really change the way you think about matchups and it's all going to be about thinking about pockets of a lineup um, and thinking about who, who a, a manager might pinch hit or will they pinch hit this early. So I think that will change the flow of the game and the mindset of the game uh, quite a bit. Yeah. I, I thought when the three batter minimum rule came out that it could maybe get a starting pitcher another out or two in the seventh inning, um, because so often you'd get six good innings, you know, 96 pitches, you're good to go. I'm my bullpen stocked. You know, I've got the lefty against Votto to start the seventh, whatever it is. Um, but but now maybe might a manager give that, hey, can you give me one more batter, two more batters? I need one out here so I can kind of back up the three batter minimum part of it to end an inning as opposed to starting an inning when things can really blow up. Yeah. I mean, um, there's no doubt we're going to see, you know, sometimes if there's double barrel action in and a, a pitcher comes in and he's just, you know, 
throws four balls and, and looks terrible, a, a manager might just think to himself, this, this guy's not going to have it tonight, or I'm going to, I'm just going to go with the other guy. And, you know, we're all going to, especially after two batters, we're going to have to wear some outings where a guy just doesn't have it. And um, there's not, there's not much a manager can do it in, in that moment. And I think that, uh, you know, I think actually it's, it's good for baseball. I, th- I, my hope with this rule is that over time it, um, it sort of gets more of the specialization out of the bullpen. You know, like you're, you're going to have to be able to get out, you know, righties and lefties. You're not going to be able to just get, you know, same sided batters out. And um, I think hopefully multi-inning guys become even more valuable than they are now because, you know, the, the ability to not only face three batters, but to keep going, um, I think it, it is going to be really valuable. So I think there's a lot of benefit that this can have over a long term. I'm not sure some of that benefit's going to come out this year because we don't have limitations on number number of pitchers on the roster. But I think as some of those limitations go into place going forward, I think that um, this will this will have a real real impact on how pitchers are are evaluated and how we build teams. You know, it it brings up the question, and and JD and I talk about platoon advantages all the time, and the general uh, kind of prototypical conversation is left right. But fly ball, ground ball, uh, there are a lot of other factors now in play. I know uh, Bob Melvin a few years ago with the A's, you know, his, his platoon setup uh, was as much about guys who hit the ball in the air versus the ground and, and, than it was left and right. Um, those things are real, aren't they? And, you know, we have a lot more fly balls in the game than, than ever before. Uh, but it's not just left, left, right, right anymore that, that goes into the, the matchup situations. No, not at all. I mean, that, that you, the way you said that is a good is a good example. Like, there's guys that just don't hit two seam, you know, or, or sinkers well at all. You know, that that's a hole they have, and they're going to pound the ball into the ground. And you know, one of the things we'll look at is, you know, what is the expected ground ball rate uh, for a hitter against this pitcher? And sometimes when you have a ground ball hitter and a ground ball pitcher, you have these astronomical ground ball rates, and you realize that you know this is just a double play waiting to happen. Um, and at the same time, you've got other hitters that really struggle with that four seamer with, with some, some ride up in the zone. They just, their, their barrel doesn't get there. They can't catch up to it. Um, and that guy is just a, is a strikeout waiting to happen because that, that pitcher can just climb the ladder and, and, and exploit that hole. And so there's no doubt that there's times when you look at you, – you throw out the right-left part and realize that it's actually the shape of the pitch is, is much more important, you know, than, than – the, the right left part of it and i think the other uh, the other positive to the you know going back to the the, the three batter minimum is we're going to see hopefully uh, more opportunities for middle of the order hitters in an advantage situation right because if you bring in you know a lefty to face rizzo then you you know he's got to face uh bias behind him and you know, so there's going to be some some late game opportunities where Star players normally would get pitched around or walked uh, or, you know, have to deal with a nasty lefty or righty, depending on which side they swing from. They're, they're going to have uh, potentially an advantage. So that's going to be kind of fun, too. I don't remember the exact stat, but I remember when we did some some re- research on this before, like the, num- the, the, the percentage of times that a guy like Rizzo, you know, faces a, a left-handed reliever late in the game is just incredible. It's basically he's basically facing a tough lefty or he's facing a closer, you know, eighth and ninth inning every single time. And, um, you know, people talk about, you know, will a guy hit 400 again, or people talk about like the, the, the amount of strikeouts in the game. And 
I think that's the part for me that they ignore when people make that criticism is that you know, that is a, a fact of the, the game now, that if you're a Yelich or you're a Rizzo or a Matt Carpenter or that kind of guy, that kind of lefty, you know, you're not going to face, you know, you're going to face only dominant eighth inning guys and closers and tough lefties. There's, there's no other thing that's going to happen in any kind of close game for you. And this will change that a little bit. And I think that is good for the, those star players to be able to get more at bats that um, that aren't just you know quite as as, as stacked against them at, you know all the time. I was just going to say so so maybe and and I'm with you. I don't think anybody's going to hit 400. There's been a lot of talk about it because of the short season, but maybe the the guy who's most likely to do it would be a singles hitter on a bad team, right? Because because it keeps you know he's not as dangerous. So he'll get pitched to. And if you're losing a lot of games, the other team maybe isn't, you know, you're not seeing the frontline bullpen guys. So if you're a betting man, try to find somebody, a, 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 you know, a high average hitter on a bad club. That's, that's, that's what I'm putting my money on. Interesting. Yeah. I it, think it, you're, you're, you're also going to see mid count pitching changes. I think somebody will do it. I think the three O hook throw ball four, that's your first batter. Um, you could exploit that rule a little bit. Yeah, I think that um, I, I think the intentional walk thing is going to be fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. the, to see what happens with, you know, the right-handed reliever comes in to face, you know, right, left, right. Does does that guy? Do the intentional walks go up to avoid that tough battery now? And I think that's going to be really interesting. No question about it. Especially especially given given the fact that intentional walks, like, you know, I know AJ Hinch went. Gosh, I think he went five and a half months or something like that last mm-hmm. year without giving a single one. It was like this big, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, medal on his chest that he hadn't hadn't had an intentional walk. And I think that um, that's going to change now. I don't think anyone's going to you're not going to see anyone issuing you know, an intentional walk. Totally agree. We are with Jed Hoyer, and we will get to know Jed a little bit better. But first, a word from our sponsor. Dear adventurers, enjoy a summer of excitement with Toyota. Keep it wild in the rugged 4Runner. With its heritage of toughness, the 4Runner is ready for just about anything. Take charge in the 2020 Camry and conquer mountain roads with its available all-wheel drive. Or plan an epic road trip and get comfy while you cruise with your crew in the roomy Highlander Hybrid. And drive confidently all the way with electric on-demand all-wheel drive. Whichever you choose in a Toyota, you're sure to make the most of summer. Soak it up, Toyota. Visit your local Toyota dealer or toyota.com to learn more. We are with uh, Cubs Executive Vice President and General Manager, Jed Hoyer. We don't talk enough about your playing days. You were a pretty good college player, Jed. Um, As you look back, uh, what stands out the most for you from your playing days and what as a player helped you become the executive you are today when you were at Wesleyan? (laughs) That's a great question. I think there's nothing more humbling about your own career than being around major league players all the time. Um, You know, so I think in a lot of ways, I I, I think about my playing career very little because of the, you know, the amount of talent around me every day and you, you watch these games and how fast the game is you realize in some ways I was playing a different game, but I think that the thing that, um, that helped me the most, uh, was, you know, I played at 
you know, a good division three program at Wesleyan. You know, we had, we had some, some good teams and we ended up losing in the, the national championship game my sophomore year to, uh, to Jared Washburn. Um, so we had some good teams and, I, but because it was division three, I was able to pitch and I was able to play shortstop. And that to me was the sort of the, the biggest advantage I've had is that I was able to, to pitch all through college and was able to think like a pitcher, you know, think about, you know, developing pitches and, and you know, think about strat- strategy in that way. But then I was also able to play every day. Every day I wasn't, I wasn't pitching. I played shortstop. And so I think being able to sort of, you know, not have to end my, my pitching or hitting career after high school and be able, being able to do it through college, I think it helped me early on with scouting. I think it helped me early on um, with strategy. And so that was probably the thing that I benefited the most from. And then I coached for a couple of years after college, and that really helped me as well. Just, be, you know, having to teach something uh, really uh, ingrains it in you in a different way than just having to do it. And so having to teach, having to teach college kids how to, how to do certain things really uh, benefited me uh, when I got into, you know, working mm-hmm. in the front office. Correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Jed. I'm sorry. Uh, just if, if I'm wrong, correct me. But I believe you are still the uh, single season and career saves uh, record <laughs> holder at Wesleyan. Is that correct? Yeah, it was it was a great Division three setting. So I would um, I'd play shortstop. Uh, one of the years I one of the years I, I I was a starting pitcher my junior year, but my sophomore year and my senior year I closed and I and I played the field. And so um, one of my closest friends um, to this day was was our third baseman. And I would actually just between innings late in the game, I would start. He'd get down in a catcher's crouch and I would start warming up because. I knew I was going to go in at some point. And so I remember thinking, this is, this is not a scene that you see at LSU. This is definitely, you know, or University of Miami. This is not a scene you, you see in the, in the minor leagues. But it was really fun for me to, to, to you know, be at shortstop and know I was going to, know I was going to come in to close. Uh, that, was, uh, that was always a lot of fun for me. Yeah, so two and a half decades later, now that you know, and I, I've, asked, I've asked J.D. this question. He pitched in the big leagues for 12 years. Uh, knowing what you know now, what would you have utilized then, particularly as a pitcher, and maybe approach uh, your repertoire, how to attack hitters? Is there anything now that you would be like, oh yeah, no brainer, I I would have done this. Yeah, so um, it, it's that's a great question and something that I think about all the time because I was basically kind of sinker slider, and I probably I probably threw like. I came into close. I probably threw fifty percent sliders, and um, everything I threw, I was trying to keep knees or below. I never wanted to throw anything up, and so my sights were always set down. <laughs> and I look back now and realize, like, I wasn't changing anyone's eye level. If it, if you were a hitter, all you had to do is look in in kind of you know down knees, and that's where the ball was going to be in, in some form. And I realized. You know, if I could go back and do it again, you know, that would be something I would do so much more of that watching pitchers pitch now. I think, you know, I saw like Kyle Hendricks struck out Jose Abreu last night on a, on a force. Yeah, I think it was actually a two-seamer up in the zone. He, he swung and missed and it looked like it was 100 miles an hour. And that was simply because he had changed it. You know, he was looking down in the zone for a, for a sinker, you know, two-seamer or a, a changeup, and he fooled him. And I never did that. And so that was, that's something that, I think about a lot that I was very predictable um, in that regard. And I, I should have known more. And then from a hitting standpoint, um, 
<laughs> I just had a lot of swing flaws that I that I realize now. I didn't know how to fix them. I didn't have coaches that, that could fix them. Um, but boy, do I wish I could go back and and uh, tinker with my swing and and change some things about it because I know I could I could do a lot better. But I mean, isn't that the you know that that's the nature of life, right? There's very few people that get this right the first time, you know. And uh, I, I'm always envious of those guys that have like a perfect swing, you know, at, at when they're 15 years old because you think to yourself like that. You know, most people look back later on and have those have those regrets of things they would do, um, and I certainly do. He was like the opposite of you, JD. You couldn't sink it. You just yeah. elevated and threw curveballs. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't bounce the ball if I tried. And then I tried. I just, my, my arm slot, the way it came out of my hand, it was, it was likely going to be up. Yeah. yeah. Um, coachability. How, how important is that, Jed, in evaluating a young player and someone you like? Because there has to be a balance um, there, there is a stubbornness that you want in a player who believes he's the best first baseman or best shortstop or best pitcher on the planet. But you also have to thread that needle in that if there are flaws, like you mentioned, you had swing flaws, uh, where they have to be open to, to change and to getting better and to tweaks. Um, how important is coachability in terms of talent? So I think that's such a great question. And I'll use Rizzo as, as a good example of this, because I think he's got a, almost a perfect balance. So when I was with, in San Diego with Riz, he had kind of a long uphill swing, you know, huge power, but he was that guy that I was talking about before. If you threw a four-seamer, you know, belt or above, he was going to swing in this. And we brought him in after his first, his rookie year. I think he had like, hit like a buck 40 or something. and we told him like, you're, you're going to have to make legitimate swing changes. So you're going to have to cover that hole. You, know, you, you can't have guys climbing the ladder on you every at bat. And he went home and actually we traded for him to the Cubs in the middle of that, that next off season. But he went home and he came back to spring training completely different that he had completely changed that hole. And, uh, and he, he closed it up that we asked him to do it and he did it. And that part is the amazing coachability that he recognized himself probably long before we told him that you can't, you can't be that easy to pitch to up in the zone. Right. But at the same time, Riz also has a real stubbornness and a real sense of, you know, I need to be my own hitting coach. I need to, I need to know what feels good and doesn't feel good. And he's not one that's going to be, con if he's going to tinker with a swing or make changes, he's going to do it on his own based on how things feel. And so I think he's very aware of what's going on around him. He's constantly trying to get better. Um, you know, he, he really closed up his, his issues with lefties after 2013, but he's not the guy that's going to take everything, every single hitting coach tells him and go do it, if that makes sense. So, you know, he's very open to making changes, but he's also not going to do everything that he's asked to do. Because he has a sense of himself. And I think that's really important that um, you've got to, You've got to be your own hitting coach. You've got to be your own pitching coach because ultimately um, it's your career and you have to know, you know, what things make you feel good and what things don't. And you can't take every piece of advice every coach gives you to heart because if you, if you do that, you're going to be probably a mechanical mess. J.D., you can speak to this as a former player. Tone matters, right? Uh, the message sometimes can be the same from five different people, whether they're coaches or front office people. But that one person says it in a way where you go, ah, 
oh yeah, I get it, right? Yeah, tone matters. I, <laughs> tone matters for sure. And, and I think this, you know, and, and Jed probably would know better than I, I think the modern player is probably more receptive uh, now because there is so much information and, and, and there's, you know, you can go to a player now and go here, we have, you know, here's evidence that if you make this change, if you learn to throw this pitch, uh, you, you learn to hit the ball the other way, you get on top of the high fastball, whatever it is, it's going to make you exponentially better, or at least a little bit better. Um, you know, back in my day, and I hate to be the old guy, but <laughs> you know, the, it was, you know, the, the, the coaching was for the most part, uh, a lot of coaches were afraid to introduce change because they didn't want to take blame if you failed. There was very much a, you know, I, I love this gig of being a big league coach and, and I don't want to be um, too aggressive pushing a player to change. So, you know, and so you, you need that guy. And I guess to a certain extent, you have to coach the coaches to teach how to deliver a message, uh, provide evidence that, that a change is, is going to actually help. And, and you're right, and, and deliver it in a tone. Uh, that works. And, and for some players, it might be um, a softer message. For other players, it might be more of in your face. And, and some guys appreciate that. Like um, we had Matt Galani a long time on our staff in Houston. Matty was great. If you'd had a bad night the night before and you were sitting in the dugout, you know, he just pitched horribly or whatever. Matt would just walk by and he'd, like, he'd, he'd hold his nose. He'd plug his nose and just gave you, you, you stunk last night. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was great. It was like, Thanks, Matty. I, I was going to say, I think even the last, honestly, two or three years, I think this has really changed in the game. That I think that there's so much information, and I think um, pitchers in particular have started realizing this information is really good, you know, that um, – Guys want to know their spin rate, their spin efficiency, their spin axis. They want to develop new pitches and, and, and tinker with new grips. And they want to go in the pitch lab and, and have a session. And, you know, even the thought of doing that, you know, three, four years ago seems so foreign to me. The guys were, oh, come on, I don't, want to, I don't want to deal with all this stuff. And now I think that there's just so much evidence around them that it works, that guys are willing to do it. Um, but I do think it's really challenging hitting versus pitching because the pitching side, you know, those guys, they want the information. They want to go in the lab. They want to, you know, tinker with different things. I think the hitting side is so different because you have to react. And I think that you can only have so many thoughts in your head when you're trying to hit a 97 mile an hour fastball. And so I think the information is wonderful, but it's also, we always fear that it can overload hitters and they, they start, they stop reacting. They, they watch so much video. They, they watch their mechanics so much. They think so much about, you know, they're being pitched that it can be a detriment and I, I do think there is a difference in how to use that information and how the coaching works with hitting versus pitching yeah and back on the uh how the environment has changed shifting i mean five years ago you'd have one or two starters on each team and i you know we don't have to name names but we know the guys uh, uh on the cubs they didn't like the shift, right? The starters. And you'd see a ground ball and they'd be you know, upset that it was a base hit. It's like, yeah, but there are five ground balls that are now outs <laughs> that weren't. But there's no pushback anymore because everybody understands that it works. And, and that didn't take very long, Jed. It really didn't. No, and that's what I'm saying is that, you know, I, I totally agree with you. You used to have those guys that wouldn't allow teams to shift and th that doesn't exist anymore. And that that wasn't that wasn't 10 years ago. That was three or four years ago. And um, it happened so fast. And that's, 
it, it's shocking to me that um, how quickly we were able to to sort of go from working hard to get any information into the right hands and into the right to the players. And we have to, we have to filter it through a lot of different sources. And, and now it's just give me the information I want it. And, you know, guys are going back in the off season and, and, and like I said, creating, creating new pitches or, or, or changing things based on the, you know, the fact that they've got, you know, Rapsodo at home. It's, it's really wild how much the game has changed that way. And I think it's changed, you know, for the better. How about this one, Jed? Uh, we've talked about shifting. Um, do you see a situation where some clubs, or have you t- tinkered with the idea of a four-man outfield from time to time, depending on the hitter-pitcher matchup? Yeah, I, I, I think that's going to be – it's going to be fascinating to see in time how certain things like that evolve. Like, do people go with four-man outfields? Do people shift outfields around? You know, right now we we shift infields around a lot, but our outfields don't as much, you know, you know, no one, you know, runs the, the better corner outfielder from side to side, things like that, you know, and it'll be interesting to see. I think a lot of sports like, you know, you know basketball I'll use as an example has become a little bit more positionless, so to speak. Um, than it was that, you know, when we were kids and watching basketball and I think baseball with a shift has become a little bit more positionless as well that, you know, Guys don't stand at shortstop or second base or third base in the same spot for three hours anymore. You know, they're going to be all over the field. And it does change the way you evaluate defense for sure. And, you know, I think the more athletic you are as a team, you know, you know, the better because you can you, you put your put those athletes you know out in space to 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 take advantage of that athleticism. But, yeah, I agree with you. I think that we could see a lot of different things. Um, and I know there's been talk of legislating some of that, but I, I think ultimately. I think that, you know, allowing teams to be creative with, with how they play a great thing about the game. Yeah, Larry Durker, uh, uh, he used to put, put four across when, when, uh, when he was managing the Astros against Mark McGuire. And I'm just, I'm envisioning Javi, right? Because his instincts are so good. Uh, Javi playing in a kind of a rover depth. And then before the pitch is delivered, he sprints into the gap to cover the, you know, to, and, and like, a, like a football player going in motion, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. just kind of reading the situation. When I was with the Red Sox, Joe Madden did that against Ortiz. He he played four outfielders, and he did it just to get in his head, mm-hmm. you know. And, and and listen, we we all know as a from playing when you look out there and there's not a lot of green grass, it messes with your head, you know. So uh, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure it had an impact on him. Uh, but I, I remember Joe doing that. That was probably like 2008 or nine. Yeah, he was way ahead of it for sure. Uh, so you, from the Northeast, worked for the Red Sox. Uh, then in San Diego uh, as their general manager, and then you come uh, to Chicago, uh, and obviously your in-laws are from St. Louis. A lot of people know that. Um, More personally than professionally, we'll get into the professional thing here secondarily. Um, What what did you think of kind of raising your family in Chicago and moving to the Midwest, considering that, you know, you you were kind of bi-coastal in terms of the first uh, 30 years of your life? Yeah. you know, my wife has always really been a, a strong, you know, Midwest pro, you know, proponent. You know, even when we were living together in Boston and San Diego, she's always kind of raved about the Midwest to raise families. And, you know, when we, when we got a chance to come back here, you know, it was such a great opportunity w- with the Cubs. But, I mean, listen, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be happier in, in Chicago. It's such a great city. Um, I think people are so proud of it, which I, I always think 
uh, you know, means a lot to me. And the three places I've lived as an adult, um, people love living there, you know, and I think that uh, there's, there's something to that. People are happy. They want to be here. And I, I don't think, and I'll keep this said it the other day, and I agree, I don't think there's a better summer city in America than, than Chicago. And, you know, people are, are incredibly friendly and open and, and down to earth. And yeah, this has been, this has been a, a fantastic nine years for, for all of us. And then what were your expectations with the organization? Uh, you, you obviously uh, knew Theo, uh, you, you know, Jason, um, but you came into a situation that needed a lot of work and it didn't take long to fix. The first couple of years were not easy. We, we, we remember that. Um, was there any moment early on in, in the rebuild where you weren't quite sure? Maybe for two years you weren't quite sure because there are no guarantees, but uh, there had to be some trying times understanding what needed to be done to get to that championship level. Yeah, I, I've told this story a few times, but um, you know, I think we felt very, we felt very you know, comfortable with you know, the Rickets were wonderful about timing and that we knew they knew it was going to take some time to, to build up the talent base. And, and we knew we weren't going to be rushed to do that. And obviously, you know, there's an anxiety level of, you know, we got to make sure we get the draft picks right. We got to make sure that the, 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 the trades we can make are going to be right. But I think there was some comfort there, you know, that we that we could do it. But I, I do have this memory. I think it was in the like August or September of 2018, uh, 2013. And I was sitting, I, you know, I, I take the trip to St. Louis every time I see my in-laws. I was sitting one day up in the, the suite, up in the box by myself for the game, which is rare. And I looked out on the field, and this is 2013. So at this point, the Cardinals have won the World Series in, in 11. Um, you know, had a, I think went to the NLCS in 12. Ended up going to the World Series again in 13. Um, so this is kind of the height of the Cardinals. I remember looking out on the field and looking at the ages of the players and kind of going around the diamond and, and, and looking at this team like, wow, like this is the team we have to beat. And it was incredibly daunting, you know, looking around the field and thinking like this team that's going to, you know, on this terrific run, we have to figure out a way to get past them. And, you know, it's funny to think that, you know, two years later, we beat them in the, in the division series. Um, and, and certainly at that moment in 2013, I was I was not thinking that was going to happen so quickly. But I felt this way in Boston and I felt this way here that I think the Yankees being so good and, and having this great organization that, that, that was you know consistently good every single year. It helped us become better in Boston um, because our standards had to be so high to win. Um, and I felt that way here as well, that, you know, in order to. To, to get where we wanted to go, we had to get past a team that when we came in, I mean, the, the Cardinals won the World Series, you know, right as we were starting out here uh, in Chicago, and they were excellent. And so in order to get, to, you know, to win the division, to get where we wanted to go, we had to be able to beat a really excellent team, a great organization. And I think it made us better. I think it raised our standards to the level they needed to be. I remember the night, Friday, August 29th, 2014. Do you remember mm-hmm. JD? Uh, no, I need Prevention. <laughs> I know you. I, I know I, you wouldn't. Was that the, was that the that ball is massacred? Was that your call? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jorge Soler. Yep. Hit two home runs. Oh yeah, yeah. Sure. In a seven-two win in St. Louis, and I said something to the effect of, "You better get used to it." You know that here come the Cubs. That was the night for me, Jed, where I thought, "Okay." This is getting really interesting now. I don't know how you felt that night. I know you were happy uh, we won in St. Louis. 
<laughs> no, I felt the same way that that was that was one of those that was one of the first moments when you you kind of started to to see what the pieces might look like. You know, we had you know that was in August, it was late August of of 14. You know, we had we had Javi up and we had Jorge up and um you know Chris was tearing up the the minor leagues that year. You know, we had traded for Russell you know earlier that summer. Uh, Schwarber was uh, we had drafted and he was he was uh, you know going off in the minor leagues and so you you started to be able to to see the picture coming into focus but what I think is so fascinating to me is you know that you said that in you know that that, that you had that call um, in August of 14 but like I said in August of 13 that picture had not yet come into focus at all right. that was right. you know, and so I think it, it happened very quickly where um, things be you know the 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 uh, the seeds of the reality were, you know, were different one year later. No, no doubt. Um, I have one last one for you, uh, and JD. I'm sure you have a no- one more for Jed too. Um, players who leave and have success, and I think there's this misnomer or this misunderstanding among some fans that when you trade a player away, that you're rooting for that player to fail. It's quite the opposite. Number one, uh, in a lot of cases, it's a player you scouted, either drafted or signed, nurtured, got to know really well, and you have a personal connection to that player. Uh, Number two, uh, players you sign, trade for, draft, you want them to have a good career because it, 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 it means you're doing something right. And then thirdly, uh, and you can give other reasons if you would like. You want teams to make trades with you. <laughs> so if every trade you make, the player you trade away uh, ends up going in the tank, nobody's ever going to want to make a trade with you. So Glaber Torres, uh, Jorge Soler, uh, Eloy Jimenez. It's not as if the Cubs brass is rooting against these guys. No, you don't want them to beat you. Um but could you talk about that process? And I know that it's it it you know it's not just you want everybody to be an MVP who you trade away, but there aren't regrets when you make the Aroldis Chapman trade because you won the World Series. And if Torres has a Hall of Fame career, everybody's happy, right? Yeah, it, it is. It's a great question because there is a balance. I mean, like you know, you're lying to say that every single time that guy comes to the plate, you're, you're rooting for them to right. hit a homer because you know, like you know, a lot of times you you end up hearing about those things and. You know, I mean, even to this day, you know, what what those three guys you mentioned, you know, how they perform, you know, people people bring that up. And I think we're all, you know, I think we get pretty good at uh, focusing on the task at hand and not you know, constantly looking, you know, looking in the rearview mirror. But, you know, you, you do hear those things. But you're right, though. I mean, first of all, I like all three of those guys immensely as people. Um, you know, we drafted and you know, or signed and developed those guys. And um you know, there's a, a real ownership among a lot of the coaches in the minor leagues that had a real impact on those guys. And so, you know, I, I feel as though um, that human element of it is real. You know, the, you, you, these aren't, you know, for us, these are people that we've gotten to know. And, and we, we've, you know, in some of these cases, it got through some tough times in the minor leagues and, you know, watch them, watch them blossom. And so it is difficult. Um, but in all those cases, you know, we have a responsibility to to try to make the Cubs, the major league team, as good as possible. And when you're in a winning cycle, you're going to have to make some 
aggressive trades, you know, to get better. There's no way around that. You know, that, you know, you know, we, you know, we needed someone that could, you know, get the final three to six outs of a world series game or a LCS game in order to win the world series. And we felt like we had the best team in baseball, but that was our Achilles heel. And, you know, we felt like we had to be aggressive to close that heel because ultimately, you know, the, the goal here was to win a world series. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that Gliber has turned into um, an all-star caliber player. You know, he's incredibly fun to watch and the Yankees are really lucky. And we got exactly what we needed, uh, which is a guy that could, you know, go out and, in, in um, you know, game five of the, of the world series and, and, and put us on his back and, and get us to, to game six and seven. So, uh, you know, sometimes you have to be, um, you have to be aggressive to, to, to make those deals. And when you're on, on the flip side, when you're not in that winning mindset, then you can go the other direction and you're going to, you know, you're going to make those trades that we made to go get, you know, the, um, the Russells and, you know, Caratini's and Arietta's and Strope's and Hendricks. And so I think to myself, a lot of it depends on what part of the life cycle of trading you're in. If you're, if you're being aggressive to win, you're going to give up some talent that people are going to look back and, and, and wish they were on your team. And when you're losing and you're on that cycle, you're going to make those trades that make other teams' fan bases feel that way. And I think in, in some ways we've seen both during our, our nine years here. So my question is, is more uh, geared towards the, the process. Um, so debating a, a trade, a free agent signing, um, there has to be some uh, tension at times, right? I, I mean, it, it can't be everybody's completely on board when you're having these conversations. So just give us a, a, a peek uh, behind the curtain of what, what some of those conversations look like. And does it ever get heated? Oh, all the time. Yeah, I, I think that. I mean, Theo and I have worked together for, I don't know, 17 or 18 years now. And I think part of why it's been a partnership that works is that we'll challenge each other and you know, we'll go at it and we'll have really spirited debates. And um, I think both of us are aware all the time that it comes from a place of all we care about is winning, right? Is that, you know, I believe my opinions right to help us win and you believe your opinions right to help us win or you know help us be a great organization and so it's just important not only to be able to have those debates but also to to have the mindset of like you know sometimes if i might even agree with them but i think we have to argue it out i think we have to um we have to troubleshoot this this issue or we have to think through all the different um all the different things that could go wrong and i think you always have to have that that kind of um tension in order to, to make good decisions and you know, surrounding yourself with people that, you know, you know, aren't going to argue with you or just going to, you know, kind of go along with what you think. I mean, you're going to end up making, you know, making bad decisions. And listen, there's, I mean, there's a lot of times I, I, I look back and, you know, I might've been on the wrong side of an argument and, and convinced us to not do a deal that we should have done and, and then and vice versa. And, but that's okay that, you know, you, you're going to, you have to go through that process and you have to, have to argue things out and have to have that spirited debate in order to have a, a good front office. And, and we certainly have done that a lot in years. Do you allow for, I told you so like just two years later, <laughs> can you come back and go, told you, man, told you. <laughs> I think that the big, I told you so's are just, they're just um, there. We know they're, they're there. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're, assume, scoreboard. yeah, they're assuming, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to bring those up and move. And, and, and obviously I think both of us have a, a few of those, but, um, you know, one thing about this this game that 
I mean, you know this well. Uh, you, you watch it. I mean, there's it's it's humbling, and there's never a point that you you get to a place where you feel like you haven't figured out. And if you do, you're you're wrong. And so, I mean, we've all been, you know, we've all had young players that we that we thought were going to be superstars that that failed, or we've all had young players that we thought had a fatal flaw that would that would that would um, stop them and they ended up being great. You know, and you learn from those things. And and, and I think that um, that's just the nature of our sport. We're dealing with human beings that can make adjustments. And, um, you know, there, there's going there's, there's you're not going to bat a thousand on those things. You just have to learn from from what you got wrong on that and, and try to figure out, like, how to be better next time, because there is no one out there that, that bats a thousand with those things. It, it's hard. Really enjoyed the conversation, Jed. And uh, again, we're taking it day to day, but looking forward to baseball coming up. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, I'm excited Jed. to hear you guys again. It's it's uh, the voices of summer. It's nice to uh, it's going to be nice to be able to turn turn on the TV and uh, and watch games and listen to you guys. So uh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Good stuff from Jed Hoyer. I, I love the if you knew then what you know now question. <laughs> you always get uh, some intriguing answers. Um, and, you know, the trades. Uh, at the end, we, we discussed kind of the process the front office guys go through. And in some ways, J.D., the coachability and stubbornness conversation we had about players that's the equivalent for a front office person, right? The, the, I have convictions in my opinions, but I'm a listener and, and, uh, you know, I can give in and compromise when needed. Right. And so, so you, you have to be willing to, to kind of uh, create counter arguments and even pointed out that there are times when, uh, you know, they're discussing a transaction and everybody's kind of on the same page, but you want to present um, the other argument, just to make sure everybody's doing their due diligence to to kind of break it all down. So it's kind of fun to get a little bit of a, a peek at how the sausage is made there. All right, this week's admission, I'm going to go first. Uh, I well, you're ready. Yeah, before the shutdown, um, I I I, I kind of got out of the habit of watching a lot of television. I might have one series that my wife and I or, or my son and I would watch. Um, but I, I I was not an avid television watcher. I'm more of a, a podcast listener. Uh, listen to audible, audible books uh, and, and those types of things. Uh, but I got into the habit of watching television again. And before the shutdown, I was convinced that the quality of general TV shows and even movies was probably at its worst in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I've realized it's the exact opposite that in some ways it's it's a lot like baseball that as time goes on uh, the athletes get better i think actors get better the writing gets better the technology improves and yes there's a lot of bad stuff out there on all the different streaming services but what that's done is if there are a thousand bad shows there are nine great shows I've watched like three or four series that are among the greatest television I've ever watched. And I just was simply wrong. And I think back to the 70s and 80s when we were watching all those shows, there weren't a lot of them. 
there were some bad TV shows, man, but we remember them as great just because <laughs> they were from our youth. There's that some really, really good television being made right now. Well, what's 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 at the top of your list that the, that you've watched recently? Well, get get shorty uh, is uh, based very loosely on the movie. Um, but but here's an example um, of what I'm talking about: Kevin Costner, Ray Romano, and Billy Bob Thornton. All are in terrific streaming and television series that I had never heard of. What does that say about our our landscape right now? That those three huge names could be in these kind of tiny TV shows that are all about quality. The fact that they're so good at what they do and they're doing these shows that you have to scour the internet for is pretty incredible. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a great point. Yeah. Um, all right. So that was a big one. I don't know if you have yeah. anything this week. Well, mine is uh, mine's kind of entertainment related too. I caught a couple of movies over the weekend, and uh, we watched the John Stewart uh, Irresistible, uh, kind of a take on uh, politics and money and, and media. And it's uh, I'd seen some negative reviews on it, but we watched it anyway, and I found it quite enjoyable. So I put that on your. Okay. Watch list. And the other one that was really interesting was Greyhound, the Tom Hanks movie. You talk about a star, um, a release to video. It's on Netflix. And it, it's about uh, uh, crossing the, quote unquote, the, the pit uh, in World War II in the Atlantic when, when they were outside of air support and uh, under siege from, from German U-boats. And that's the entirety of the movie. There's, there's no, you know, there's not much of a threat other than just him trying to get this ship with this convoy uh, across the Atlantic. And it's really gripping stuff. Really good. I highly recommend it. Great. Uh, and I didn't mention Goliath is the uh, Billy Bob Thornton series. Uh, I believe three seasons. It's absolutely terrific. Uh, so some good television out there and uh, make sure you check that out. Special thanks, Max Berman, Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Big Jim Oboykowicz, Shane McGuire, and Adam Sobel for Jim Deshaies. I'm Len Casper. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, share this podcast with all your friends. We will talk to you next week on Open Concessions, presented by Toyota. Toyota.